Welcome to a special edition of Motive and Method. I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet. And I'm Tim Watson Munro. Today we're going to be taking a deep dive into the case of Lucy Letby. This is the case you may have heard all over the news in the last week or so. She's the British nurse who's just been sentenced to life in prison for the murder of seven and the attempted murder of a further six neonates in her care when she was a nurse in hospital. This has made world headlines and sent shockwaves through communities everywhere. She's received the most stringent tariff she can in the UK, which is life without the possibility of parole. And I think it's really raised some serious questions about um, safety of children and vulnerable groups within our communities. And it certainly caused a lot of fear too. Lots of people have asked me about it. Lots of people have asked Tim about it. So we really want to unpick this case today. We're going to look at who is Lucy Letby and why would a young nurse turn to murder? We're also going to look at some other comparable cases of medics who kill their patients. And we've done a lot of media around this. And Tim did Spotlight on Channel 7 on the weekend. I've just written a conversation article. So we know there's a lot of discussion taking place in the community, who people who want to understand more about this case and how something like this could happen. So that's what we're going to be deep diving into on today's special edition of Motive and Method. So Tim, lots of people have been talking about this case over the last week or so. People have been stopping me to ask, basically, what motivated Lucy Letby? What makes her tick? I did a lot of research into this case. It's, as you say, it's one that's captured global interest. It's quite clear from my observations of media reports, material that was presented to me ahead of the Spotlight interview, that she was a very disturbed, troubled psychopath. In other words, she was bad, she's not mad, she was well organised in terms of how she committed these murders. They always occurred on her watch when other people weren't around. And her behaviour, which is typical of serial killers, escalated with the inflection of time, the passage of time. So she initially put her toes in the water, she got away with it. There was a doctor who put up a red flag and this says something about hospital administration. He was cautioned and a letter of apology had to go to Lucy because of her, her being offended by her conduct. And it's arguable if she'd been picked up at that time, many babies' lives would have been saved. So I guess in short compass, a person who's well-oriented in time, place and person, no remorse, no empathy. And if you look at some of her writings, which we'll discuss later, uh, she was clearly aware of what she was doing. So let's take a step back here. That's kind of where we've got to. We've got to these, sadly, seven child deaths and another attempted six child murders. Um, let's look at her childhood, because I know that you looked at that, that, that spotlight episode. What did you discover about her childhood? What, what is the background to somebody becoming a serial killer medic? Well, one of the things that struck me was these comparative photographs of her as a little girl, angelic with a bow and a hair. And then the mugshot when she uh, was taken into police custody. She was an only child, that doesn't mean much, but uh, she was doted upon by her parents, probably indulged. So much so, by way of example, that when she completed her nursing degree with honours, so she's a clever person, her parents put an advertisement in the local paper to advise the local population. I can understand that pride, but it's perhaps next level pride. Um, they were worried about her moving away to work in a hospital elsewhere. I gained the impression uh, that she was just an overindulged child who uh, never really had consequences. And perhaps the best example of that 
is at the time of the verdict coming in, the guilty verdict, seven murders, uh, incontrovertible evidence, it would seem, her mother stood up and argued and said, this can't be right, my daughter couldn't be capable of doing this type of crime. So an unusual kind of situation. But that said, it would seem that a general childhood and adolescence was fairly unremarkable. And as we've discussed many times, often these people have this chameleon-like ability to blend into the community until they're caught. And you were telling me about what her bedroom looked like. Are we talking her adult bedroom here? Because you said it was very childlike. She moved away from home. Part of the evidence, the part of the brief of evidence which I saw was her bedroom. Some people are more tidy than others. That doesn't mean you're going to become a serial killer, but it was infantile. There were you know, fairy lights around the room. It was very untidy. She lived alone. I read a report, I don't know if it's correct or not, that her parents were considering moving home to be closer to her, where she worked in the hospital. And more recently, they're considering moving to a place that's uh, closer to the jail, where she's going to spend the rest of her life. A lot of her musings and writings have a, an adolescent flavour to them. She was an adult woman who felt that she would never partner. Uh, she feared that she would never have children. And I think she was despairing for the future. So she was very much an attention seeker as well which often goes with uh, personality disorders and this type of thing. But these do sound like kind of adolescent fears. You know, when you're young and you're kind of like, oh, what does my life hold? Am I ever going to have those things that, you know, people aspire to? That kind of sounds like a, a very, very young person as opposed to an adult female who's inevitably in a very responsible role as a nurse in a neonate clinic you know, it doesn't get any higher risk than that. So it's, it seems a kind of bit of a, a mismatch that somebody is so insecure and so infantile in some of their patterns of thinking would have such a responsible job. Do you think that's one of the issues here? Yeah, I, I think gathering from what I've read that she felt that in many ways she was out of her depth and she was struggling, I think. But having said that, she enjoyed the power associated with the position that she held. She had the power of life and death over these poor neonates and some died. She attempted to kill others. At least one survived a very vigorous attempt to take that child's life. So I think it was all about attention seeking. I read a psychiatrist raised the possibility of Munchausen syndrome or Munchausen's by proxy, which is a syndrome where people deliberately injure their children to get attention for themselves or injure themselves to get attention. I don't think this was Munchausen's. I think it was um, more insidious than that. I think this, this was something which escalated with the passage of time once she got away with it, and particularly after they had to apologise for having thought that she might have been killing children. That no doubt empowered her further. The other thing that was interesting about this case was that she allegedly had some sort of infatuation with one of the doctors there. He was described as Dr A., in the material and often, as I understand it, be there in that ward at those times. She would derive comfort from his presence. I raised the possibility that maybe in part the attention seeking was about getting his attention as much as the broader attention of people in the hospital. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I haven't studied her as closely as you have, but I think that we do have an unusual personality mix here. I've also heard Munchausen by proxy kind of 
you know, put forward as a potential reason why she may have done this, that attention-seeking behaviour. But again, it kind of struck me more that she has more in common with other serial killers who who were medics ultimately, whether she sought out a role that gave her access to vulnerable people or whether she became empowered with that that life and death, you know, godlike complex. And I know we're going to talk about that in a minute. It's whether that kind of took over once she was on that ward, it's obviously impossible to say she's still claiming innocence. So we don't have a motive. She hasn't actually spoken about why she may have committed these crimes. But certainly you look at her history, you look at the almost helicopter parenting, you know, these these overindulgent parents who are basically still very involved in this woman's life, you know, and she potentially was struggling to become independent and take those steps for herself, then, um, yeah, I think it's all a bit of a recipe, isn't it, for ultimately for disaster in this case. And I was curious what you thought that move to the hospital may have been like. Do you think that was maybe a trigger for her because she's gone from the safety of her parents' house with the support there to this very, you know, intense job away from her family, away from that network do you think that was potentially a trigger? I, I think it's all of the above. It's chicken and egg, whether the job created it or whether she sought out the job uh, to commit these crimes. Uh, certainly moving away from home may have um, exacerbated underlying feelings of insecurity. She didn't have the umbrella and safety blanket of a, the immediate family around her. What I thought was interesting was that she started in this hospital, as I understand it, in about 2010. Yep. And she was under the radar for effectively five years until 2015. It was at that point that there were two complaints. Almost uh, two years later, a killing spree happened, uh, resulting in the deaths of the other people. So I, I think with she became more powerful. She became more confident, uh, perhaps more confident in her capacity as a nurse working in a high-risk unit, but also more confident that she could get away with it without being discovered. I mean... We trust doctors, we trust nurses. We don't go to hospital having surgery or being put in intensive care expecting that our carers are going to murder us. And so uh, you would think she thought she was the last person who'd be suspected of this type of crime. And I think once it became a pattern for her, it became an addictive pattern of behaviour for her. Arising from that, I have no doubt at all, which is the, the typical career path of serial killers, that she would have kept going had she not been detected. And she was only detected because of the high death rate among these neonates, wasn't she? It was the pattern of deaths. You know, we had as many deaths, I think I think we were talking about this a few days ago, as many deaths in a short period of time as in the previous two years or something in that unit. So it was really sparking concern amongst the colleagues. And ultimately, she was found to be the only person with access to all of those children, all seven who sadly died, plus the six that, uh, that she's been found guilty of attempted murder. She was the only person. You've got to remember, neonatal wards are very high security. It will be the swipe card or pin code access. They will have known exactly who was on that ward and when. And Apparently, according to the evidence produced in court, she was literally the only person who had the opportunity to do this. So that's ultimately how she was caught. But her colleagues did have concerns in the years leading up to that. And I think that's a major part of this case going forward. It's like they were basically silenced, as you mentioned. So that's going to be a concern for the the hospital going forward, the mismanagement of those complaints 
And why wasn't it fully investigated? Because regardless of whether these children were dying by someone's hand or not, something was going wrong in that neonatal ward that was leading to this high occurrence of deaths and, and ultimately the illnesses of the other children. The other point is the child that survived provided critical evidence as to what malfeasance was occurring because they discovered insulin in that baby's blood. And they realised then that this child, who was not obviously diabetic as best they could determine, had been given a lethal dose of insulin. And that had to be administered by, guess who? The person who was in charge at the time. So there was strong forensic evidence arising from that survival that I think enabled them to further join the dots. And two of the children certainly died from intentional methods. They absolutely established that. And the question was really then, who who could that have been? And it came down to that opportunity, didn't it? But that motive is still missing. And I think that's where it comes back to what can we tell from other serial killer murderers to, to look at potentially the motive. And I think we've touched on it already. It's that kind of the power over life and death, isn't it? You know, I think that is really um, important to some people and really drives them and feeds them. And they once they start, as you say, they are not going to stop. There are women who kill children, um, but often that's driven by psychotic beliefs. So they may feel that their child is uh, the child of a devil and to save the child from hell they have to kill. I mean, it's a, it's a psychotic delusion that leads them to do it. She's quite different. And in some ways she's different to a number of other of medic people that we've talked about uh, privately over the years about this type of crime. I mean, if you look at... Uh, uh, Dr. Shipton, yeah, um, mm -hmm. he he uh, was convicted of murdering 15 or 16 people, but there's a generally held belief that it may have been up to 250 victims, and um, his motivation clearly was all about power, uh, uh, control over people, ending their misery, the, the sort of angel of mercy type of concept. The significant and I think consistent thread with all these people is that. Uh, they tend to pick on the vulnerable, don't they? Neonatal people, um, elderly people and so on, people who can't really put up any resistance and certainly with uh, older people, a great deal of trust in their medical practitioner. Yeah, I think Harold Shipman's a really good example. So um, for those of the, the listeners who don't know, he was an English GP who is considered one of the most prolific serial killers in modern history. He was convicted of murdering 15 of his patients in 2000 but it could have, could have killed up to something like 250. And his patients were older. Uh, I think the youngest was 41, but they were generally in their 50s, 60s and 70s. And he can kill them by injecting lethal doses of diamorphine, after which he falsified their death certificates to indicate they died of poor health, which was untrue. And again, suspicions were raised because the number of patients of his that were dying and the number of cremation orders that his colleagues at the GP's practice were being asked to countersign, because obviously he didn't want any evidence left, did he? And also, it was interesting, actually. I actually um, weirdly met Harold Shipman. Well, he was post-mortem. When I was at, doing my PhD in Sheffield, he, oh, really? we opened one of the fridges um, to put away one of the... Um, one of the individuals we were working on in the forensic department, and somebody said, oh, that's Harold Chipman's remains on that, that um, gurney beneath. So they were kind of tiered in the fridges, and it was just his skeletal remains. And I was like, wow, that's all that's left of a man responsible for 
so much destruction, you know, up to hundreds of people may have died at his hand. And it was it was kind of a an odd moment for me to see him in that circumstance, knowing what that man was responsible for. I didn't know that part of your history. It's fascinating. It'd be a bit like seeing the cadaver of um, Charles Manson, although yeah, Shipman killed Wall. Or Hitler or someone. It was, it, was a, it was a strange moment for me, yeah. And I always thought Harold Shipman, you know, he was so respected and nobody could believe it because he was, he was described, wasn't he, as kind of very caring and empathetic and his patients loved him and, you know, he was, he was really seen as a pillar of the community and I think this really speaks to how these medics get away with it for as long as they do because they are so well respected and nobody challenges them because... You know, they, they are seen as the, the carers, the nurturers amongst the community. And ultimately, a neonatal nurse is like the pinnacle of that. So much trust placed in this person. And it was heartbreaking for me to see the footage. Uh, the, the Spotlight program managed to interview the parents of the child who survived. But, uh, you know, in general terms, I didn't speak to them, but they clearly who wouldn't be extraordinarily traumatised by the whole, whole process even now. The what ifs. It was only because the mother had a sense of something not being quite right that she decided to go into the hospital. And I suspect that uh, the nurse was interrupted in the process of trying to murder the child. You know, wow, it was that only close. Just pulled through. You know, only just pulled through. What about other people like uh, Niels Hoag? Is that how you pronounce his name, Hoags? The the German nurse, you mean? Yeah. So yes, he's an Indian. Yeah. He's an interesting character, isn't he? So, yeah, when I was um, writing my piece of the conversation, I, I started to look at other medics because I was obviously aware of Shipman. I was in the UK when that happened, and I remember that case breaking and how huge it was. It's like the Letby case will be now. But then I kind of looked at some other medics and came across a German nurse who in 2019 was found guilty of murdering 85 of his patients, again by lethal injection, some of which he, some of whom he tried to resuscitate to basically show off to his colleagues, but others he didn't, and he simply allowed to die. And, and like Shipman, he is suspected of killing a significant number more than have currently been identified. And what strikes me about these people, they they seem to have this god complex, don't they? And I know that's not like it's not a formal term; it's very colloquial. But the god complex of like that power, you know, they literally decide who lives who dies, and they get that buzz from that. Is that your sense of these people, that that is really what drives them? That, Like all serial killers, if you look at Ivan Milat, ultimately he decided who lived and who died. He decided how long he was going to torture his victims for. So that seems to be this common thread, not just with medics, but with all serial killers, that it's that, that power over life and death which ultimately drives them. Well, I agree with... All of that. I mean, the God complex, you're quite right. It's not a, you won't find it in the DSM 5, the Diagnostic Manual for the American Psychiatric Association. But the reality is these people do have a complex of uh, the deity in some ways. They're all powerful, uh, life over death, death over life, and so on. I think if you were going to give them a formal diagnosis, you'd have to say they're, they're narcissistic, using old violence, they're psychopathic. These days they're described as being individuals with antisocial personality disorders, but I think that's a bit lame. <laughs> These people are, uh, you know, true psychopaths in every sense of the word. And arising from that, they're not people who are crazy. 
They're not operating under some delusion. They're not hearing voices that are telling them to kill these people. Um, they know what they're doing. They have mens rea. They're aware of the consequences of their behaviour. So guilty they have mind. Rea. They, they have the guilty mind. Yeah. And they carry out type behaviours, you know, criminal conduct behaviours. And so um, I think a lot of people think, well, you'd have to be crazy, wouldn't you, to be doing this sort of thing? What sort of normal person does this? But there's a big difference between street parlance crazy and legally defined crazy. And uh, certainly in terms of the nurse, uh, there was no mental state defence available to her. Uh, she went down on all seven counts. And in fact, the Defence Council didn't offer any mitigating circumstances at all, as far as I'm aware. So there was there was no indication of that. And I, I totally see the narcissism in all of these individuals. You know, that need for admiration. They have grandiose behaviours and total lack of empathy. And obviously that goes along with the psychopathy as well, that lack of empathy and remorse, etc., but, you know, these are people who need to be looked up to. And I think that's why some of the professions, such as, you know, the medical professions, draw these narcissistic psychopaths in because they will ultimately get that intention and people will look up to them, you know. And so I think that feeds that God complex that we've been talking about. I think with her too, it's the excitement. You know, it's exciting for her at some level. And uh, I noted uh, some of her correspondence to some of her friends saying, you know, we lost another little one tonight. Uh, you know, she even wrote to the parents of the deceased, trying to keep the game in play by re-engaging them. Uh, it's the most troubling sort of behaviour I've encountered in many ways. But a sense of excitement, she would become known in the hospital, presumably. One of the things that interested me, and I didn't see anything along these lines, is whether or not she was psychiatrically evaluated as part of the sentence hearing. There certainly was no mention of that as far as I'm aware. Well, I would imagine they certainly would have looked at that, surely, given the seriousness of her crimes. But as I said, the Defence Council didn't offer any mitigating circumstances. So I take it if a psychologist or psychiatrist did assess her, then there were no, um, no relevant factors to be found. Well, she didn't admit her guilt. So there'd be no explanation from her as to why she committed these crimes. The best you could look at is her developmental history, any prior history of psychiatric or psychological disturbance. As far as I can tell, there was none. Her life was ordinary. She lived alone. She was a nurse. She went out with some friends. She had anxieties regarding the future. A lot of people do. Uh, but no history of mental illness that I could uh, determine from what I've read. So... A psych report would be pretty thin on the ground, I think, beyond describing those dynamics. You can't offer an explanation. Uh, the only thing I think you can say about her with absolute certainty is that she's not crazy in the legal sense. And do you think she cared about getting caught, cared about the consequences, or was she just caught up in this, this power trip that she was on and the attention-seeking that ultimately came, you know, when she tells her friends they lost another one, I'm sure there was an outpouring of sympathy and empathy for her because people would expect that to have, you know, a psychological and emotional toll on her as the carer, you know, of these very vulnerable babies. Do you, so do you think she, she cared at all about potential consequences or did she not even, did she not think she was going to get caught? Well, it's, it's hard to say. I, I suspect not. I suspect that she lived in the moment of existential thrill, if I could put it that way, 
And like any addiction, they don't think about the next day. They think about what they're doing at the time. And if they think about the future, they're thinking about the next kill. So with her, if you look at the dates, there was certainly a dramatic escalation in the lead up to her being detected. Uh, she, was show she was throwing caution to the wind in many, many ways, I think. Uh, she looked pretty sad at the time she was um, arrested. I saw some footage of her police record of interview. It was very passive and meek. Um, she pleaded not guilty. So I don't think that there was any great sense of remorse of any regarding her actions. No empathy and the cruelty of writing to the parents of the deceased. As I say, it's uh, the next that, level uh, of evil. We see that escalation, don't we, with serial killers when, you know, the thrill of the kill isn't, you know, they keep getting closer and closer together because they need that next fix, you know, and it's, it's driven by other things going on in their lives. If we look at Malat, you know, he had some type of trauma in his, his personal life and he would go out and kill. So it would be interesting to see what was going on in her personal life at the time, which may have given some indication of, to explain this pattern. Well, uh, who knows what, what triggered the escalation. I, I think it was just a growing sense of self-confidence, um, particularly after, you know, people at the hospital were required to apologise to her in writing. I mean, how empowering would that be for a serial killer? I've really got away with it. I'll keep going. It's and, giving you the uh, green light, isn't it, ultimately? Absolute green light. And uh, as a general proposition, um, I think... Hospitals need to be more alive to these considerations. Rare as these type of people, individuals, sorry, rare as these types of people are, um, we need to be vigilant to the possibility always. Uh, it's not as though it's carte blanche trust anymore, I think, in hospitals. And, and ultimately, regardless of whether somebody was intentionally harming the children or not, a lot of the neonates were dying. And the hospital appears to have been more concerned with its reputation and burying the problem than actually looking at why they were losing so many children. You know, was this a policy issue? What, what was going on on that neonatal ward that was leading to these children becoming so seriously unwell and dying? And so I think the hospital well, has some big questions to answer. I agree with that. I would say, too, that it's not peculiar to that hospital. Uh, you often read about um, hospitals covering up deaths and... Uh, you know, reputational damage is very important to these people. They want to keep it at bay if they can. But certainly I think in this case, once the red flag went up, if that had been investigated thoroughly, I mean, you just move it to another ward perhaps and see what happens. But nothing happened. And consequently, she was empowered. And of course, psychopaths love power, don't they? Yeah, I think that's what drives all of them, isn't it? That's ultimately the thread that ties them all together. Well, I think it's power, it's lack of remorse, no empathy, attention-seeking, narcissism. I mean, the list goes on and on uh, beyond craziness. And they're, they're not insane uh, in terms of medico-legal considerations. And uh, if you look at other serial killers, they keep going. Look at the Golden State Killer, for example. They, uh, they will keep going until they're detected. You look at the Hillside Stranglers in Los Angeles. Those murders ceased in LA, but the similar pattern reappeared in Oregon, and that's ultimately how they were caught. They find it exciting. I mean, with some serial killers, in fact, most that I've read about, there's always some sort of sexual component to it, which goes to the control of the individual. 
Uh, I don't know if there was some sexual component to this. It's, it's, it beggars belief to think that there might have been, but who knows? There's certainly a need for excitement and attention, I think. What would you think her level of awareness may be about how now she's going to be viewed by society? She's obviously going to be vilified. You know, everyone is talking about this case, but she appears to be, as you described her in that, that um, interview with the police, meek. People have described her as boring, that basically the most unlikely of killers. So do, do you think she has any kind of awareness of how she now appears? Well, I gather she refused to attend court for her sentencing. So at the end of the day, she's a, she's a coward as well. Um, and the judge directed that she read or may have made available to her his sentencing remarks and the victim impact statements. I think she's now aware that she's in jail and she's going to stay there forever. And I might add that her time in prison will be extremely difficult for her. Uh, she'll be a protection prisoner in all likelihood, isolated from other women who inevitably, from my observations over the years, you can't kill children, go to jail and expect that to be the end of the story. There'll be a lot of persecution of her. So it may be a slow dawning or it might be a very abrupt dawning of, of uh, the gravamen of what she's done. But uh, the consequences are plain as day now, aren't they? Well, do you think, how do you think she's going to cope in prison? Because she is away from those support networks. I know you mentioned her parents are thinking of moving closer to where she's incarcerated. But time is going to be very tough for her in there. And I'm, I'm not saying it shouldn't be, but I think somebody with this particular personality... I think she's really going to struggle more so than perhaps some other serial killers might do. I'm, th you know, I'm thinking about the the violent males who are basically at the top of the tree, aren't they? In prison, they're looked up to by some of the other inmates. Whereas, I don't think that's going to be her experience. Child abusers, child killers, are lower than the lowest in a prison population. They need protection. Uh, if you factor into this case that these were neonatal children, vulnerable children, um, you know, without being too dramatic about it myself, I'd be surprised if she lasts terribly long in prison um, without protection. And who knows, she might decide that the best thing to do is just put an end to it. Because uh, a lot of people in jail, they, they survive through some sense of a future. You know, if it's 20 or 30 years, eventually I'll get out and I'll make the best I can do of my circumstances. It's quite clear she'll never be released. So life as she once knew it has ended. And it ended pretty abruptly, you know. She was arrested at home, taken into custody, and her, her world fell apart at that point. So who can speculate? But I, I certainly agree with you. It's going to be a very tough time for her. And I think most people would say, well, who cares? And keeping in mind that there may other, and keeping in mind there may be other charges to follow because the police are now looking at earlier deaths and injuries that may be suspicious in the light of what we now know. Well, that's possible, but as we know, um, if they get a conviction and somebody's in jail, um, there's often a reluctance to look too deeply into the past because it's more paperwork, more trials, more court time taken up. Um, but it may well be the case that there are others who died at her hands uh, prior to 2010. And she kept resuscitation notes from some of the children, didn't she? And she also kept photographs of cards that she sent to the, the parents and she kept cards that they'd sent to her and all of these 
items were entered into evidence during the prosecution case. Um, I wondered what you thought about that, because ultimately, to me, they sound like mementos, and, and serial killers generally keep mementos so that they can relive those events. And we've seen that, I think, every serial killer I've ever looked at has kept something from the victims. Do you think this was her version of mementos, keeping those notes and cards, etc.? Uh, that's certainly part of it. It's also, I think, intrinsic to a need to keep the game in play, some measure of control, keeping contact with the tragic parents, uh, the grieving parents. I think that's part of it as well. The other thing that struck me was handwritten notes to herself where she talked about hating herself. She talked about, I can't keep doing this. I mean, those documents, I think, incontrovertibly established her guilt, uh, ironically enough. But, uh, you know, I thought maybe she's a woman in turmoil. Maybe at times she has fleeting uh, glimpses of the gravity of what she's doing. But on balance, I don't think so. I was going to play devil's advocate here for a little bit because when I heard about the notes, and I'll caveat this by saying I wasn't in court, I haven't heard all the evidence, I haven't heard the timelines, there are only a limited number of people, and those are the people who are in court every day, who have heard everything, and I'm not questioning the jury's decision on this. Taking all of that into consideration, the fact that those notes were so influential, at no point does she actually say that she did it. And I'm raising this because it did remind me of the Kathleen Folbig prosecution. Obviously, Kathleen has just been, in June of this year, she's just been released. You know, we've done a podcast talking to her friend, Tracy Chapman, about that ongoing battle for 20 years when Kath was accused of murdering three babies and the man saw for a fourth and she's yet to have those convictions quashed. But her case was purely circumstantial. It was the occurrence of deaths plus the notes in the diary that she left. And those combined factors led to her successful prosecution. So I have to say that part of me, when I heard about this case, it is purely circumstantial. It's the fact that she's the only person who had opportunity to have harmed all of these children, plus these notes that were found at her home and her writings and the cards, etc. All of this built a picture. And whilst I completely see what you're saying, that it, it appears incontrovertible, and obviously that's what the court found, part of me niggles to say, there's no, there's no silver bullet, there's no actual forensic evidence that links her directly to those deaths and attempted murders. Apart from the insulin. Yes, so one child was certainly injected with insulin and almost died, and she was the person there. But I mean, I'm, I mean, there's no fingerprints on the syringe, for example. Hmm. You see what I mean? It's like, so my brain just kind of goes, there's, there's a little note of caution in my head, just like, okay, something can look so black and white, and then a few years later, more information can come to the light that, kind of swaps everything around 180 degrees. So I, I completely agree. I'm not saying she's not guilty. I'm just saying there's just, I would like to have seen a silver bullet that said it's her because this, you know, she was seen on CCTV doing whatever, you know? It's just without that, there's a little part of me that just is niggled. I guess at the end of the day, the court found beyond reasonable doubt that she was guilty. Uh, it wouldn't be the first circumstantial case where that's occurred. There's the insulin. There's the propinquity, her presence at the time of every one of these babies dying. Um, 
you know, I've always been of the view with certain caveats that you've raised that if it waddles and quacks like a duck, in all likelihood it's a duck. But um, we'll never know 100% unless she confesses to it. And I think the likelihood of that occurring is zero. So um, that's what it is. Yeah, I agree. And I think if it weren't for the Kathleen Forby case, I think I would feel different. But I think, you know, that is just playing on my mind. It's so recent. I've had personal involvement with it. I watched Kath and Tracy's battle for justice in that case. And so, yeah, I think I will always just be a little bit wary of circumstantial cases on their own. I think that's just how I will always view them now, but I'm not questioning the court's decision on this at all. So, um, yeah, I think it's an awful, very sad case. And I wonder, you know, she's obviously preying on the most vulnerable in society. So that's a trend that we see with these murdering medics too, isn't it? Like they do prey on the weak, the very young, the very old, those in intensive care. This is, this is something that they do. Do they do it because they're weak or do they do it because they are opportunistic and these are the victims that they're most likely to get away with it with? All of the above. I mean, the people you describe have no voice really uh, the elderly, uh, you know, ageism, um, elder abuse, all that sort of thing is now pretty well documented. Neonates have no voice. It's the God complex. But I think at the end of the day, it's just uh, pure evil. It's not confined to medics, of course. The latest one hot off the press is the case of um, Kenneth Law, who was a former aerospace engineer turned chef, and he's been selling poison substances to young suicidal people online. And he's now been linked to 88 deaths and accused of selling 1,200 lethal kits to people in 40 countries, including Australia. Uh, again, uh, although the occupation is different, the dynamic is very similar, preying on the vulnerable people who want some way out of life. I'm sure the elderly that uh, shipped and killed didn't want to die, and I'm sure the babies didn't want to die either. But... Um, in Law's case, it's a very clear example of what you're talking about, preying on the vulnerable. I would caution that Kenneth Law is pleading not guilty at the moment. So these are obviously alleged. There will be a number of, I think, international investigations, Canada, Britain, um, possibly Australia as well, because some of those 40 countries, you know, Australia was certainly represented in that. And the link here is that vulnerability, isn't it? So Lucy Letby's victims were neonates, Harold Shipman's were... We say older patients, but, you know, those he could at least claim on death certificates were unwell, you know, and also uh, Nas Hoag's victims were in intensive care. And so the latest iteration of that is targeting people online who are suffering a mental health episode, who are, who are suicidal and who he then dispatches these these lethal kits to to help them suicide. And I don't think there was anything altruistic in that. We do hear about cases where people who are very unwell, who are in palliative care, for example, want that option mm. of euthanasia. But I do not think that's what we're talking about in the alleged case against Kenneth Law. I think there's probably that, that power complex again. Um, he's killing people all over the world and he's inducing them to do it themselves. Isn't that the ultimate power trip? Well, it is. And again, look, I know very little about this case, but he's obviously a highly intelligent guy. He's an aerospace engineer. Well, he dropped out and became a chef. Uh, you've got to wonder why he did that, you know, to cook up different sorts of recipes. Um, who knows? 
But uh, again, it doesn't seem to me that he's a guy who's um, out of touch with reality, that he's not crazy unless he's sort of a, a late developer in terms of psychosis and so on, but sufficiently organised to get these poisonous substances organised and then send them offshore. So, two years. Two uh, years he was doing this for. So if he's in the middle yeah. of a psychotic break, it's a really, really long one. I guess the other point is this thing, this phenomenon keeps occurring, doesn't it? What is it that drives them to do it and what are the trigger points? But it is rare. I mean, I don't want people listening to this to suddenly start fearing going to their hospital or their GP. It is incredibly rare, which is why when a case like Let Be hits the media, it does make an, in, you know, it is an international case. Everybody is talking about it. And I think they, they basically want to understand, like they, they assume somebody is mad, as you mentioned, because how could somebody sane do this? But these people are very organised. They limit, you know, the likelihood of getting caught most of the time until kind of the pattern of events overtakes them and they sometimes get a bit carried away with their behaviours for want of a better way of putting that. And they throw caution to the wind. But until then, you know, it's planned, it's premeditated. They know exactly what they're doing and they target the most vulnerable victims. And I think that is something that we see with the serial killing medics but also serial killers more generally. So I don't think this group is particularly unusual. I think they're a subset of serial killers who happen to be in jobs where they have an almost unlimited supply of victims. And the means to do it, you know, access to insulin, for example. Uh, one of the other babies had air injected into the vein. So, And these are all standard medical procedures. So you see a nurse giving an injection or putting it into a... Uh, a drip that goes into the body, it's not going to raise your suspicions in the first instance. It's only when this trend or pattern starts to emerge that then some people think, boy, this is a bit out of the, the ordinary, really. There's so many people dying so quickly. What's going wrong? But uh, they, they have the means and the method and the motive to commit these sorts of crimes and they get away with it for a long time, it would seem. And ultimately the opportunity. They are not suspected. Well, this case, I don't think is going away anytime soon. I think people are going to keep talking about it, keep asking questions. And now we have this most recent potential poisoning case that I think is going to gain some attention too, because when these people kill, they kill a lot of people. And so I think these discussions are going to be ongoing. People need to understand why these people do what they do. And so hopefully the, the listeners will have got a good sense from the conversation today about potential motivations and links between some of these individuals as we've taken a deep dive through the Letby case and um, looked at some of those international comparisons. So that's Motive and Method. I'm Dr Xanthi Mallet. And I'm Tim Watson-Munro. Until we speak again, thank you. Thank you for listening to Motive and Method. And remember, if you're loving the show, you can give us a review, you can subscribe to our channel and feed, and you can recommend us to friends and family. You can also set up a bell notification alert so that you'll know first when a new episode is available.